From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. As Congress prepares for the president to release his budget request for the coming fiscal year, there has been some preliminary maneuverings going on on Capitol Hill in anticipation of that that we want to talk about this week. Joining me to do that is Paul Krozak, the senior budget writer at CQ Roll Call. Welcome back, Paul. Great to be here, David. And Paul, let's start with some breaking news that you just broke this morning on CQ.com, which is that the president's budget could be delayed a few more days. Well, that's true. So what we had, what we, what OMB had said was that the budget would be released. Office of Management and Budget, the White House Budget Office, yeah. Yeah, next week on March 9. And what we learned this morning is that the main part of the budget will still be released on March 9, but most of the rest of the budget will be released the following week on March 13th. And that will include um, the analytical perspectives part of the budget, which has a lot of detail, and it will include all of the proposed appropriations bill language from the White House, which has a lot of detail, and other supplemental materials. Those will be released March 13, but the main budget will still be released on March 9, which uh, includes the, the summary tables, the proposed spending and tax figures, and, and summaries of what the president is proposing for each of the uh, federal departments and agencies. Yeah, so this seems to continue what's what's now a trend uh, of of releasing instead of just having a budget day where the budget comes out. It's it's the trend now seem does seem to be that it gets released in two parts, with sort of the summary part first, and then the full budget documents coming out sometime later. Right? We've had several years of this now, where under under both the Biden and Trump administrations, and I, even Obama, I think, right, where where the the budget comes out in two parts. It has happened periodically. And in some cases, it's because um, all of the uh, preparation of these more detailed documents is not complete in time. Um, It's unclear what the reason for the two-part budget release is this year, but it could be related to next to Thursday when the budget would, when the first part of the budget will be released. That that will be a busy day in Congress, so that that could be a factor. And we should say that that you know the White House is already about a month late in releasing its budget. You know, by by statute, the White House is supposed to submit its annual budget request the first Monday in February. This is now March, so we start the process about a month behind schedule already, as as Congress under new leadership for the in the Appropriations Committees this year. Uh, say that they really want to try to get spending bills passed on time. They're already now a month a month behind, and now we, they won't get the budget documents in full. They'll wait another few days into the week of March 13. So the process does keep dragging out. I'm not sure there's any great uh, significance to you know waiting a few more days. 
Uh, but but it is indicative of how tough it is to get these documents together, I think, and to get stuff done in a timely way. Well, that's true. And there is a reason for the delay this year, and that is the the omnibus spending bill was was passed late. It was passed in December. Yeah, the money for the current the money for the current fiscal year came so late. Right. Uh, not and, until December. And this this was for the fiscal year that began last October. They were way behind again. And that right. And every time you do get behind, it does it does tend to delay the following year's budget work. So right, because the the White House wanted to take into account all of the information in that omnibus spending bill for this year and factor that into the budget. Um, and so that is the main reason why the budget came later. If they had done the budget earlier and not included that information, the budget would have been much less useful and up-to-date. Yeah. So that is a good point. So in a way, you can say it's not their fault for the delay because Congress was so late in in getting its act together last year. Uh, But here we are. But in any case, we're going to have at least the highlights of the budget come out this coming week on March 9, and then the full documents coming out the following Monday on March 13th is what we now know. And so Congress has already been anticipating this, Paul, and we've seen some preliminary, you know, jockeying here, some mulling over how to handle the process this year. The process, of course, by statute is supposed to begin with a budget resolution. That's that sort of non-binding blueprint that Congress is supposed to pass by April of each year to, to map out the basic spending targets that they're going to work under to draft their spending bills. But oftentimes, a budget resolution never gets done. And it seems like that may be the case again this year, right? Well, that's true. Now, according to the budget law, the the House is supposed to adopt its budget resolution and the Senate adopts its budget resolution. Then the House and the Senate agree on a common budget resolution that they adopt. And that sets tax and spending limits uh, for the Congress and for the Appropriations Committee. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, Republicans are in control of the House um, in this Congress. And House Republicans, uh, historically, and especially in recent years, have been very committed to the idea of adopting a budget resolution. And that is also the case this year with House Budget Chairman Jody Arrington. Um, He and the committee, they are Republicans on the committee. They are at work putting together a budget resolution, which will, among other things, roll back discretionary spending to 2022 levels. But in the Senate, it's a different story. Um, In the Senate, it it appears very unlikely that the Senate Budget Committee will write or take up a budget resolution this year. In fact, the Senate Budget Chairman Sheldon Whitehouse told me a a couple days ago, he said he's not even going to consider writing a budget resolution until he sees what the president's budget says, and he also wants to see what the House budget resolution looks like. Um, And there are reasons 
why he may not want to do a budget resolution, and we could get into those if you'd like to. Yeah, well, I mean, it is striking. We should say the Senate, of course, is under Democratic control. So the Senate Budget Committee is under Democrats' control. And they are not eager at all to do a budget resolution. And your story on CQ.com this week certainly made that clear. White House wouldn't commit one way or the other, but you certainly you talked to other members of the committee, actually from both parties, Paul, who clearly indicated that it's very doubtful that they're going to take up a budget resolution. So why don't they want to do their job? I mean, the main the main purpose of a Senate budget committee is to is to write a budget. That's right. So one of the factors in the Senate is in order to adopt a budget resolution, part of that process is the votorama during the adoption of the budget resolution during during the debate. And votorama, as we know, lasts several days and nights, and it, it allows for unlimited amendments. And a lot of these amendments um, are political amendments. They are designed to put the other party on the spot and, you know, put out an amendment that the other, you know, members of the other party will vote against. Um, and then the other party can then use this in campaign commercials in the next election. Uh, so, the, so one reason the Senate often avoids a budget resolution is because of Voterama. Which, which really just means they don't like the politics of it because it, it just sets them up for all kinds of politically perilous votes that they don't necessarily want to go on record taking, right, that they can be used against them in campaign commercials. And so it becomes kind of politically dangerous and and why bother if, if, if it's something that's never going to actually get finalized in Congress anyway or become law, right? Right. And there's an even larger reason, uh, political reason, and that is, so let's say Senate Democrats write a budget resolution. What's it going to look like? I mean, the Congressional Budget Office is projecting rising more than $1 trillion deficits every year for the next 10 years. So if Senate Democrats write a budget resolution, what is it going to show? It's going to show, it, it's going to probably show high deficits. If they want to avoid showing high deficits, what do they do about those deficits? Um, assume big tax increases in the budget? Well, that's not real politically popular. <clears throat> Are they going to assume big spending cuts in the budget resolution? Very unlikely Democrats are going to propose big spending cuts. So, so it would be hard for, for Senator Whitehouse to write a budget resolution that would not show high deficits, that would get the, the approval, approval of Democrats in the Senate. So, so that's a major political reason. But then, you know, as you said, the other reason is there's almost no chance House Republicans and Senate Democrats are going to agree on a budget resolution. So that's another reason for the Senate not to write a budget resolution. And so in the we got another clear indication this week, Paul, that they're not going to write one, which was top Senate appropriators said that that they're preparing to come up with a top line spending figure for the year that they can use to then write their 12 annual spending bills you know, basically in the absence of a budget resolution, in, in the absence of that blueprint, they need some kind of top line figure to work from. 
and that sort of will avoid the need for the budget resolution. And and so appropriators may may just march on on their own uh, and come up with a top line spending figure that they can then use to write their own bills. That was another clear indication this week that um, we're not going to see a budget resolution. I don't know. Have budget resolutions become passe? It seems as though increasingly they're not workable. Well, they are needed. There is one situation in, in which they're needed, and that's budget reconciliation, So, um, which is usually a partisan exercise in recent years. So if one party controls both the House and the Senate, and if the president is also of that party, then there is a, an incentive for the House and Senate to pass a budget resolution and then for both to agree on a common budget resolution, which includes reconciliation instructions, which allows the, the Senate to pass budget-related legislation with a simple majority rather than the usual 60 votes. So when Democrats were in control of everything, um, both chambers and also the presidency, uh, th they did agree on budget resolutions that included budget reconciliation instructions. Yeah, although we should say, Paul, at, in those instances, as they did, they you know Democrats jammed through their their partisan uh, pandemic relief law in 2021, and they did that through reconciliation. That way, they could avoid a filibuster on the Senate floor, and they can ram it through on a party line vote. And they needed to have a budget resolution in place to do that. But that's really just using a budget resolution as a tool to make that happen. It wasn't a budget resolution that was actually used to guide the budget or to 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 really guide these 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 spending bills. The the traditional notion of a budget resolution that would actually guide Congress on spending does seem to be an antiquated notion at this point. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure about that because, you know, think, let's assume the House Budget Committee adopts a budget resolution and that will set spending limits for the House Appropriations Committee. And the House Appropriations Committee will then write its 12 appropriations bills based on the top line spending limits. So, that budget resolution will will guide the House Appropriations Committee, even though the House and Senate do not agree on a budget resolution. Now, if this budget resolution assumes... Although, although that just sets them up for gridlock, right? Because it, it assures that the House, under Republican control, will write a very partisan budget resolution, which will produce very partisan spending bills that will never become law because they have no bipartisan impact and you need bipartisan support to get anything passed in the Senate. Well, that, well, that's true. And I, you know, we don't know, we will have to wait to see what these appropriations bills look like. But if the house does pass appropriations bills and if the Senate passes appropriations bills, then the house and Senate can go to conference on these appropriations bills. And obviously Whatever they come up with is going to be different from what the House passed and different from what the Senate passed. Okay. Well, so in any case, that's sort of where we are, I think, is where is that the House will pass a Republican-drafted budget resolution that will likely call for some deep spending cuts. That's what they say they want to do. The Senate will back off and not pass any budget resolution in all probability here. And then we'll see what the appropriators can come up with uh, in terms of the top line spending levels, and we'll see how they get their bills written. But it seems as though that's the game plan now, 
as they await the release next week of the president's budget, which which really will mark the starting point of the appropriations process and all the hearings and all everything that comes out of that. And we did see one other development this week, Paul, we should talk about briefly, which is in anticipation of writing those spending bills, you know, we are now, I think, in the third year of of restoring the practice of of earmarks in the bills, letting lawmakers insert their pet projects into the spending bills, which had been banned for a decade, but has come back with some new safeguards and kind of interesting to me that actually lawmakers from both parties seem to think that those safeguards have largely worked in preventing corruption, which is why they were banned a decade ago. It seems as though that the process is more transparent now. These earmark requests get posted publicly on their websites. They can be reviewed. There are more limits on what you can request for earmarks. And so we'll see. And under Republican control now in the House, though, we did see a change this year. Just this week, they issued their guidance for earmarks, House Republicans did, that made them even more restrictive than what we've seen in the last two years, with some grumbling there from Democrats, because Democrats said, look, we proved the process works. There hasn't been a problem. Why why make it, why exclude more member priorities now? But Republicans are still concerned that that earmarks can open the door to wasteful spending projects that aren't really justified. And so they've narrowed it some more, particularly by banning earmarks entirely from three of the 12 spending bills that used to have them. One was the defense bill, which didn't have much, but but for what it's worth, they banned earmarks on the defense bill. But they also banned it uh, in the financial services bill, which funds the Treasury, the IRS, and other stuff like that. But they also banned it from the biggest non-defense bill of the year, which is the bill funding the Department of Health and Human Services and and the labor and education departments. That bill, which is always hard to pass, even with earmarks, could be even tougher to pass without earmarks. Because it's a very partisan bill. That's the bill that gets into all the policy disputes over abortion policy in particular, and all kinds of other social policies that come up, such as such as, you know, gun control policies and and whatnot. It's a very tough bill. It's always it's always partisan. There's a lot of money involved there. The biggest non-defense bill of the year, it's over two hundred billion dollars. And Part of the rationale for allowing earmarks is to sort of get bipartisan kind of buy-in support for the bill, because if if all these members are getting their pet projects in there, they're more they're considered more likely to vote for the bill. Um, but now this year, for the first time in since since the last Congress, since several years ago, uh, earmarks will not be allowed in that bill. Any guess, Paul, what the impact really is here? I mean. Uh, we certainly heard a lot of Democrats grumbling that that uh, they didn't like that. Well, so you know, in terms of you know the, the reasons why the uh, in the House Republicans are you know um, House Appropriations Committee is banning earmarks from from these bills. I mean, one, you know, one reason that we've heard is that it's going to be a real challenge to 
get some of the more hardline conservative Republican members of the House to vote for appropriations bills. Um, and there, I mean, there, there is a belief that by uh, saying, you know, we are not allowing earmarks in the, you know, this uh, education, labor, health and human services bill, that that might, you know, bring some of these members to consider voting for that bill. So that's one of the reasons we've heard. Um, the, you know, tr- traditionally, you, you know, the, the, the big argument, you know, made in favor of earmarks is that, you know, senators and, you know, representatives, you know, who live in their districts or in their states, um, you know, have, have a, you know, specific sense of what their communities need and can benefit by. So why not let them, you know, make some of those decisions? And so that's sort of like the, the intellectual rationale for it. But yes, going back historically, um, earmarks have made it easier to pass bills because a member has an earmark in a bill, so that gives him or her an incentive to vote for it. Um, but, you know, in recent years, there is an argument about whether earmarks are really helping to pass these bills. It's not, it's not clear that earmarks are having any kind of, you know, major impact in helping to pass the bills. You know, maybe, maybe a little bit, but I mean, there is an argument about that. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure they really have helped that much, frankly, with all the gridlock we've seen the last two years, even with earmarks. Um, hard to say that earmarks made that much of a difference when it the process bogged down still for months and, and most bills ground to a halt. Um, I'm not sure AMARCS has really does have that much effect. And of course, Republicans now in power in the House, I think, did target that that HHS labor bill in particular because because of these social policies I was talking about. There was a lot of Republican resentment at projects that fund um, a lot of, uh, you know, gay and lesbian centers and that kind of stuff that Republicans just don't like. Um, and by, by banning earmarks from that bill, they eliminate all those kind of projects or at least makes them a lot tougher to be funded. So you saw a little power play there by Republicans this year, now that they have the majority to, to push their own priorities, which does not include those kind of projects. And so Democrats resent that, but there won't be much they can do about it. We'll see. Uh, in any case, we should always remember earmarks amount to less than one percent of of all this discretionary spending. So it's it's a it's a tiny fraction of the overall budget pie, um, but it can be important. It can be important to members' own priorities and to to fund projects in their districts that they think are vital that otherwise wouldn't get funded. So um, we'll be watching that closely because this is only the third year of of earmarks uh, being back in business. So we'll see how that goes. But I think that's all the time we have for today. We will be eagerly awaiting the president's budget request and be back to talk about everything in there and what it'll mean for the process going forward. But thank you, Paul, again for joining me. And thank you, David. Thank you all for listening. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. We'll see you next time. 